Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the show. My podcasts all have ads. If you find the ads annoying, then consider subscribing to the podcast. With a subscription, you won't hear any ads. Plus, you'll have access to exclusive content only available to subscribers. If you can't afford a subscription, please write to me at admin at colemanhughes.org with a few words explaining why you enjoy the channel and how it benefits you. We'll get back to you after a short period of consideration and we'll offer a subscription free of charge. Thanks again for watching and for all your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. So the UK theme continues in this episode. This is a recording of a live event that I did in London with Freddie Sayers. Freddie is the former editor-in-chief of YouGov, the founder of Politics Home, and the executive editor of Unheard which is a great publication you should all be reading. So Freddie ran this conversation and we covered lots of ground. We talked about American race politics. We talked about the legacy of Black Lives Matter. And we talked about how to tackle divisive race-centered ideologies. I really enjoyed this conversation and you'll hear that the crowd did too. For whatever reason, I was quite a bit funnier here than I usually am. So that's always good. I hope you all enjoy this as much as we did. So without further ado, Freddie Sayers. Hello, everybody. Hello, and welcome to the Unheard Club. Uh, we are here relatively newly open. This is one of our very first events, and we have a fantastic guest joining us today who I'm about to introduce. If you are watching on the live stream, whether you're on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, welcome to you as well. We are going to organize this with a conversation between us. There's going to be a couple of clips. Then we're going to have a short interval where people can go and get drinks. Or if you're watching online, go and do something else for 10 minutes, and then we will have the Q&A, and people are welcome to join in the discussion. This is the conclusion of a, of a long-held ambition of ours, which was really made more important and more pressing than ever during the pandemic era, which is to bring people together, IRL, in real life, in 3D, in the same room, talking about important things, not isolated, stuck in their homes, staring at a screen all of the time. It felt that period was very bad for the conversation. It was bad for ideas. And it has been incredibly exciting since we launched this place less than two months ago, just before Christmas, to see it full, to see people really responding well to it. And we have a full house tonight. So thank you to all of you guys. Uh, I should say that if you want to be invited, this is not an uh, exclusive club. Uh, If you want to be invited, all you need to do is subscribe to Unheard. Um, so if you're watching online, there is a link available on the Unheard website slash register, and you just sign up. It's 95p a week, which is an absolute bargain. Joining us today, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is Coleman Hughes, who I believe it's your first time in the UK. It is my first time. And you came yesterday, so you're even yeah. still a bit jet lagged. So this must be your first ever event in the UK. Well, I, yeah, this is my first ever public event. That's right. Welcome. Glad um, to be here. Glad to be here. So as many of you will know, all of you probably will know, Coleman is a writer, a podcaster, an opinion columnist who basically shot to superstardom over the past two or three years um, as an even-handed, evidence-based, careful commentator on the vexed and controversial topic of race. Um, His writing has been featured everywhere from the New York Times through to Quillette. He's appeared on all of the big, big podcasts, most significantly, of course, The Unheard. 
TV channel, which uh, we spoke, and I'm actually going to begin our conversation with a clip from that. Um, he is, among his other many skills, a near-professional jazz trombonist, a graduate in public policy from Columbia, and recently a rapper. So welcome once again, Coleman. I'd like to start by playing a clip, if we could. We did a, a YouTube interview in, on the 1st of July 2020, which was really the kind of high point of a lot of these, I guess, June and July of that year was when this race question took over the Western world in a way. And I asked a question which created a sort of awkward moment between us that really stuck with me. And a lot of people in the comments were talking about it. So I thought I'd kick off where we left off. <laughs> the phrase Black Lives Matter is obviously very well chosen because it's impossible to disagree with. Um, you, know, you very quickly risk being cast as either a kind of annoying contrarian or worse, an actual racist, if you start even kind of having the kind of conversation we're having. Um, so, so how do you think we should respond to these protests? Who is we? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, so that... <laughs> um, that was a great question then. Um, and a lot of people in the comments were speculating as to what exactly uh, you meant. And one interpretation must be, am I talking about... English people? Am I talking about media commentators? Am I talking about white people? And since then, of course, there's been a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Um, well, here you are. You're talking to a white person about race. Yes. Um, Not just any white person. Don't sell yourself short. You're very <laughs> safe. Why, why do you think it's important? Uh, is it important to talk to white people about race? You know, I don't even view it as talking to white people or a white person about race. I'm not sure exactly what I meant by who, who are we. Um, it was probably just a genuine question. But, you know, I'm of the radical opinion that you can talk to other human beings about important topics that affect us all. Um, and that race is not, you know, if people routinely every day fall in love and get married and start families across racial lines, then at minimum, we can have a conversation about a social issue that affects all of us. Um, and those who insist on the opposite, uh, people like Robin D'Angelo, I often pick on her because uh, she is the most famous uh, example of this. But in her smash bestselling book, which was on the bestsellers list for like something like a year in America, it was almost unheard of. She has these rules, essentially, for white people. And the rules are, if you're talking to a black person about race, don't disagree, don't argue back, don't remain silent, don't withdraw from the conversation. By process of elimination, the only option is to loudly agree with anything I say, <laughs> which I do expect you to do in this conversation. <laughs> but look, this is not... That's not how you create a conversation with, uh, with an equal, right? Just in the course of your relationships in life, what it means to, to be in conversation with an equal is that I can disagree with something respectfully that you say, you can disagree with something that I say, and that we both acknowledge we might have something of value to contribute to, mm. to the topic. That's boilerplate prerequisite for us having a conversation between adults, what D'Angelo and, and those who think like her want to create is a situation where essentially white people are like adults and black people are like children, right? Where whatever I say, 
I'm kind of like a petulant child that you have to appease and rather than have a genuine conversation with. That's not equality. That's not any kind of equality worth wanting. So in some, the reason why I'm talking to a white person about race is the same reason I would talk to any other human being about any other topic that affects us all. Uh, well said. Uh, I guess the, the, the question also has a bit of a specific um, angle. Even if you take as read the idea that we're all human beings and we should be able to just communicate respectfully with each other, there is this awkwardness, I think, and it isn't often talked about, um, which has sort of seeped into everything. It seeps into the way the media covers it and who feels legitimate talking about this issue. Um, and I think a lot of white people probably do feel awkward yeah. talking about it uh, because they face the rejoinder, you know, what do you know? Awkward or afraid? Possibly both. And, and I wonder whether there's a danger there that that can become anger um, and, you know, if, if, if people feel excluded from a whole topic, like their voice doesn't matter, it actually makes things worse. Mm. Do, you, do you think there's some truth in that? I certainly feel that way. Personally, as, as a person that's grown up in the West where we have an expectation of being able to voice our opinions, which is often, simple, it's, it's often your last refuge, right? You may have no power in society whatsoever. You may have no wealth you may have no status. What you do have is the freedom to, at the very least, say what you think in your life, right? It's one of the last freedoms that you hold on to um, in, in times of struggle. And it's psychologically important for that reason. I certainly feel a kind of anger begin to bubble up when I feel that I, I can't say something fairly reasonable in situations. And I have to imagine many people feel the same way. And they often vote their anger, they take their anger to the ballot box, sometimes in ways that are counterproductive, mm. um, when they feel that they cannot simply have a conversation in, in, in public. So look, I think some awkwardness is warranted. The history of race relations involves all kinds of injustice, slavery, oppression, and then just subtler dynamics of, of um, social psychology that are, are the stuff of great comedy, the stuff of great, you know, sketches, Key and Peele, Dave Chappelle show, right? There's all kinds of dynamics that are interesting and, and awkward. And that's okay. I think awkwardness, awkwardness, you know, you walk through the door of awkward, awkwardness and you sometimes find a lot of interesting stuff on the other side. Mm. There's nothing wrong with awkward. What, 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 when it's a problem is when you, you are afraid, you are afraid to say anything critical, for instance, of, of BLM, because you know if, if word gets around, that could mean your reputation and your job uh, and your livelihood. Um, right. That's when it really starts to provoke that. So uh, officially, whether you're watching online or in person, you are all welcome here. Um, and we have no interest in what your color is. Let me follow up on what you just said, which is BLM and what we should now make of it. Because when we were speaking there, uh, it's nearly three years ago. Mm -hmm. It was still a very new movement. Um, it had uh, this huge amount of energy. With the benefit of that time that's passed, what do you think we should now make of BLM, the movement? It is hard for me to think of a significant good consequence just for Black Americans that came from BLM. 
Now, I can very easily give you the opposite. I can very easily give you a harm, which was, and this is not only on BLM, it's just the wider atmosphere of the riots and the apologism for them, which is in America, you saw that the, the greatest single year over year increase in homicide. And that was not born equally between racial groups. It was, it fell squarely disproportionately on black people and black men in particular. So you saw the largest single percentage year increase in homicide of black men. You saw um, crime spike in locations. You saw black owned businesses being looted and destroyed and therefore, you know, property values lowered places becoming basically uninhabitable. Um, So I would challenge anyone to come up with a comparable benefit that was experienced by black people as a result of the 2020 BLM moment. I mean, you can say more black people got um, put on boards, which is true. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of boards of directors that are, are more diverse now, you know, people that were already probably making, you know, millions of dollars are now making more and are on board seats. I don't know what the hell that has to do with George Floyd or the problems of the black poor or poverty or the problems of, of, of police abuse. That seems like a quite a poor compensation for the largest, um, increase in homicide in, in American history. So, so um, three years out, I still, I, I judge it as harshly as I did at, at the time. I mean, if you're right, that, that is an extraordinary conclusion to reach, isn't it, after that time? Um, and the statistics you give are quite hard to argue with. And surely there must be a lesson for us all to come out of this, that a movement and a moment that gripped so many of us and so many people we know, and highly intelligent people, people, extremely well-meaning people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was a very uncanny and very powerful group moment. And if your analysis is right, it, it did not make the world better. Uh, you know, what can we learn from that? How should we respond differently next time? One thing to learn is that it, is you should pay more attention to people who have skin in the game. If you were to only poll communities living in high crime neighborhoods during 2020, you would have gotten a pretty balanced picture where, you know, maybe half of people would have said, you know, we we want less police, but fully half would have said the opposite. Um, That was not the picture that was presented in the media because most of the people commenting on the issue had no skin in the game. They had already, by means of wealth, you know, lived in neighborhoods where it's not that the police doesn't matter, but it's like you're, you're not taking your life into your hands when you go walk out on the street. Kids are not being shot, um, you know, every weekend in the summer caught by stray bullets. So it's, it can be easy to abstractly say, I'm on the side of the movement with the good slogan that everyone is getting behind that seems like it's well-intentioned, um, that stands on the quote-unquote right side of history uh, without you or anyone you love being the one to pay the price of far higher crime rates. So I think more attention... So we should be skeptical more than we perhaps were. We should... Yes. And, and you know, at the time, any for, for instance, the journalist Lee Fang, great journalist, works at The Intercept and just broke uh, part of the Twitter file story. Um, 
he interviewed a, a, a man that happens to be black that was totally against the riots and what was happening. Um, and he essentially got canceled simply for filming this guy speak his truth, right? Um, and, and this is what was happening at the time. Anyone that, that portrayed um, what was the opinion of, you know, tw- at least 20% of black America, um, which was that they wanted more police, and in fact, 80% want, wanted more or the same level. Only 20% wanted less police presence. Anyone who portrayed that was essentially canceled or, or said to be smuggling propaganda um, and all this stuff. So the next time this happens, I hope there isn't a next time, but there probably will be, pay more attention to the voices of people who have skin in the game because they speak more sense than the, the opinion of um, you know elites that don't live anywhere near the chaos that they are helping apologize for. I'm going to now bring a parable to us, sure. uh, which you may or may not have heard being talked about, and that is the parable of Ngozi Fulani. Um, I gave you a tiny bit of a briefing before we met, um, but I'm actually going to let her speak for herself. We have a clip of um, Ms. Fulani who can tell her story. She, she went to a reception at Buckingham Palace, and there she met an 84-year-old courtier, a former lady-in-waiting to the late queen, and she didn't like the conversation that took place. Let's play the clip, if we can. So then she began to ask me, who am I? Where am I from? So I said, I'm from Sister Space. It's an organisation that supports African and Caribbean heritage women and girls. And then she said, oh, what part of Africa are you from? And I said, I don't know. I didn't leave any records. And that's, that's my truth, right? I, I couldn't trace which part. Then she says, no, but where are you from? I said, no, Sister Space are based in Hackney. No, but where are you from? I'm not going to leave it right there because I feel like this week we cannot do without the cultural commentary of Prince Harry on this topic, uh, who is now, who is now a, a great leader on uh, these issues. Uh, let's let's play let's play that let's play that clip uh, a very short clip of of Prince Harry's reaction to, to that story. You speak to any other couple, mixed race couple around the world, and you will probably find that mm. the white side of the family have either openly discussed it or secretly discussed you know, what are the kids going to look like, and that is part of a you know bigger conversation that needs to be had, but. To say that that doesn't happen around the rest of the world, but it just happened there, is that's not true. But again, for me, the difference is unconscious bias and racism. But if that, if you are called out for unconscious bias, you need to make that right. And you have the opportunity and the choice to. But if you choose not to, then that rapidly becomes something much more serious. Okay, so I'm going to first of all ask you, Coleman, have you been asked where you're from? And do you ask other people? where you're from and what kind of question is that? I find after what's your name, it's one of the best questions to ask. Um, I'm often in Ubers in New York where I live, where I'm from. And I usually find the second or third question I will ask an Uber driver is, uh, where are you from? And if he has an accent and it's always a he, I often want to know where they were born and where they came from and when they came to America. And I've never once got a complaint. 
And in fact, every time I've gotten a very interesting conversation where I learn something. Um, I recently spoke to an Uber driver that uh, because I asked a question, where are you really from? He ended up giving me his take on Afghanistan, U.S. involvement there as someone who grew up there. And uh, I, for the first time in my life, heard the take that you can be pro-U.S. and pro-Taliban. And it kind of made sense. (laughs) So you learned something. I did. Yeah. I learned his perspective on the issue, given his interests as a local and how it looked to him. And it actually was coherent. Anyway, the point is, this is one of the basic human questions that one can ask to another. And I, I really, despite this incident, I still feel that 90% of people walking on the street, if asked this question, would not even think twice, Mm. would not get any, any level of offended. I think this, the, the, the kind of people that get offended by this are a very loud minority that are given attention. Mm. Just to take it a little bit more seriously. (laughs) Yeah, sure. uh, In in one sense, the question is kind of complicated often these days, isn't it? It's, there are multiple answers to the question, where are you from? I mean, this particular lady, Ngozi Fulani, actually changed her name. She was born in Kilburn by the name of Marlene Headley. Um, She was born to parents, I'm getting this from Tomiwa Obolade's column, and I'm hoping you might come chat to us in a moment, but she was born to parents of uh, Barbadian heritage, um, and uh, she's not African, um, and yet she's taken an African name. She's Mm -hmm. very... Uh, her African identity is very important to her. And I wonder if you observe that kind of thing happening over in New York and in the US, that identity is, has now become a lot more complicated and people are wanting to change their identity or to focus on parts of their identity that, they, that may or may not be true mm-hmm. to gain some kind of, improve this story. Well, I've... I've... I have sympathy with people that want to reinvent themselves and get in touch with uh, their roots, however they perceive those that to be. I don't think that there is anything inherently wrong with that. I think that is kind of a it's a universal urge to kind of have roots that you can trace to, and it's something people look to uh, in you know a certain kind of person looks to, or anyone might look to in kind of times of struggle in one's personal life. Um, I mean, if you're going to do that, though, if you're going to adopt an African name, you can't be surprised when people assume you're from Africa. And you, you ought not get offended. Um, but this is, this is the world uh, that um, migration and globalism and diversity uh, is creating. It's one where identities are going to get more complex. And that's okay. But it, it also means that I think people should be, a, I mean, people like this woman should be much more forgiving and not seek to, to, to cancel someone for what is clearly a well-intentioned comment, right? Mm. No one believes that, you know, if she had answered, oh, I'm from Africa, that this eight-year-old woman would say, ugh, Africa. Right. <laughs> no, she would, have been, she would have been curious. She would have wanted to know more about the place. How many signals do you need that the intentions are good? before you, you understand that you don't, you don't have to rush to, to judgment of a person um, over such a benign question. 
the the concluding part of this little parable was also very telling and very relevant to how this tends to go, uh, which is there was immediately a kind of shutdown. The institution, in that case, the royal family, um, put out a very apologetic statement. And this 84-year-old lady uh, was ultimately brought in for an education session uh, with Ms. Fulani. And I believe they made up and, you know, everyone's friends in the end. But it was couched in, yeah, I would say terror. There's this sense, if, if, if this... If there is any accusations related to this that touches any organization, this is now the playbook. Mm-hmm. Run a mile, apologize, re-educate, and hope it goes away. How should organizations react if they come across this kind of controversy? The temptation to do something is deep and profound. Uh, this is true, as true of politicians as it is of you know, institutions. Sometimes the best thing to do is to let it blow over. The news cycle is pretty fast. And if you, I mean, I think there are cases where if you hold a line, people will forget. They will move on to the next issue. They will betray the fact that sometimes they didn't really care so much about this to begin with, right? Sometimes it's a kind of, I don't want to say feigned, but it's a kind of short-lived anger, about these kinds of issues because most of the people getting mad in the back of their minds, they know how normal a question, where are you from, is. Mm. They know that. Many of them know that. And so the institution could have just said that. I mean, that's the, the parallel universe is perhaps one where they just said, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Of course, not, nothing bad. I mean, I, I do think there is an incentive where if you, if you apologize for things that are really not worth apologizing for, you create more of this. Mm. Because the people, again, it's not a psychologically normal person, in my view, that creates a campaign around condemning a person who asked, where are you from? This is, this is not normal behavior, right? Whatever you want to call this, this is not the norm. And I think such people thrive on the attention and validation that is given when an institution says, Here's an apology, which is synonymous with saying your concern is valid, right? We are validating that you're not, that, that you're basically in the right to be offended. And that actually creates more of this because people, people see that. And at a subconscious level, often people that, again, have s- certain issues, uh, a subconscious level, they become more like the kind of person that gets offended because they see the rewards that come well, with that offense. Right. So think, actually, we, we potentially make the world a better place. There's a, there's a moral virtue attached to a bit more of a robust response to these kind of things and, and less apology and more, even if it sounds defensive or if it sounds, you know, PR consultant wouldn't advise it. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's the, the path upwards from this. I think so. I think so. Let me ask you about, I've got a, a really good clip of your music, which yeah. I wanted to come on to. Um, and this is one of the, the rap and... Oh, sorry, can I say one thing about Prince yes, Harry too? Please, I didn't yep. comment on Prince, Prince Harry's. Um, if you're watching. So I, I'm American, so I, I don't, like most Americans, I don't follow every jot and tittle of, of the details around the story. But I did, I saw that interview. I saw the Oprah interview. and. He's, he's never 
made it clear how he knows that comment was made in a racist way. Like, you know, wondering what a baby is going to look like is not such a bad thing. I think it's probably anyone who has had a baby has probably... <laughs> I, I talked to my girlfriend about what our babies are going to look like. You know, it's like, it's like a... It, it, presumably, he believes it was meant in a racist way. Like, I hope the baby's not going to be too dark. Uh, but to my knowledge, he's never said that. He just said someone wondered about what the baby was going to look like without naming that person, which then allows the mind to speculate and go wild about, oh, who was it that said this? And I, I, I'm sure you all have much so This is the point at which Oprah did a big, oh. Yeah. Like, we, know, we don't need to say it out loud. We know what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, to me, to make an... You ought to be really specific if you're going to make an accusation about something mm. like that, right? Like, if you're going to accuse... Like, if he had said... Someone in the royal family is a bit of a pedophile. Okay, well, that example actually doesn't work because... (laughs) (laughs) But imagine a world where Andrew wasn't... And he said he casted a vague aspersion. Well, someone said, uh, you know, something Mm. about a kid looking good. Wait a minute. Hold on. Really make the accusation or don't, Mm. you know? Because uh, if you're going to accuse someone of, of, of really not wanting the baby to be dark, that's a, very, that's, a, that's a very deep accusation to make about someone. And I think it should be made seriously, like with a name or, or not at all. Mm. Um, and, and the way he's kind of, uh, the, the way he's not uh, pinning himself down to that it was even really a racist comment as opposed to a, 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 a kind of curiosity of, of a sort that anyone might have. Um, it, it seems fishy to me. I promised that we would play a clip of Coleman's music and we are going to do that to play us out to the interval. Can I play my um, clip of your, you one may. of your yeah, yeah. songs? Sure. Um, sure. Let's have it. This is actually from um, a song called Straight A's, which talks about your story. <coughs> Yo, my mama raised in the flames of the South Bronx Without a name and no food in the household Me, I was raised with a spoon in my mouth Few cars in the yard, cartoons not allowed though I see my mama in my dreams when I'm pensive I see you throwing shade in my mentions I hit that with the sun ray disinfected I put the double forte in offensive Yeah, I got straight A's in my prep school It's probably why I'm getting paid like the Mets do <laughs> um, so it was a bit quiet there in the room. I hope you, I hope you heard it on the the stream. We actually we had to bleep out. There's there's an N word in it. Uh-huh. We bleeped it out because if we don't, YouTube will demonetize the channel. <laughs> um, so this is the world we live in. We don't like to censor people's art, but that is unfortunately the world we live in. Um, I think my reaction is it's amazing it looks incredibly the 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 video is great it, I, I liked it so much i was also slightly maybe surprised mm-hmm. by it because it it's it feels very kind of it, the, the voice is different mm-hmm. to the person who's sitting here mm-hmm. um it, it's much more gangster rapish than i would have expected mm-hmm. um you know it's the n word you're talking about bitches and stuff and i <laughs> like this this very um you know, well-spoken 
gentleman <laughs> on, nice the, on the couch. It is called Straight A's. Yeah. It's about doing well in school, Freddie. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, as it turns out, is how you get bitches. <laughs> um, I guess I, I wonder, is, there like, is that a, was almost a point that you're making there to, to sort of interpret it? That actually, I don't think, is there a rapper who brags about doing well in school? I don't think so. But I think there should be. Well, there is now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we are going to take a short break. Um, if you're online, please stick with us. If you're in the room, the bar is open. You can get a drink or you can just sit and chill out for 10 minutes. And then we are going to start the group discussion. So stick around. Back uh, to the Unheard Club. Um, that's the end of the interval. We are into part two, uh, where we're going to get a bit more of a discussion going. So let's start and see if there are any questions or ideas that people want to share in the room. Um, lots of hands going up. Before we start that, can I just, in the politest possible way, uh, say that when you do get the microphone, please, the question formulation, and then please <laughs> hand it back. Because sometimes when you get it, it's sort of like you don't want to <laughs> keep it forever. Um, Flo is going to come around with a the mic. There's uh, a couple on the front row. I'm going uh, to start with our very own books editor, Casey Dawes. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Freddie, um, and very good to meet you both and talk to you and hear your views. Um, Coleman, I wanted to ask you one word, reparations. Mm -hmm. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? So that's the kind of length question we are very much into. Thank you, Katie. So I got into trouble a few years ago by testifying against reparations uh, in U.S. Congress, and um, my position on it hasn't, hasn't changed since then, I've always been in favor of paying reparations to living people that, uh, people like my grandparents who lived under the Jim Crow system. If that's a system we all decide that we, we are ashamed of, it makes perfect sense to pay the people who actually lived through it. That's, it's quite a different thing to say that I am owed money because my six greats grandfather uh, was a slave. There's a certain point at which enough generations have passed where th there's a kind of statute of limitations on on these issues, um, and so, so that's that's the first point to make. Second point to make is that all of the problems that reparations would allegedly solve, they would not in fact solve. Um, I can. I can almost, you know, we could talk about the wealth gap. We could talk about all kinds of inequality of outcome. There are far better ways to address the root causes of those than to, uh, you know, hand out a check with slavery in the memo line. And, and, and beyond that, the notion that reparations would, this is sort of Ta-Nehisi Coates' idea, that it would lead to a spiritual awakening that it would heal the American psyche, I think is a total misunderstanding. I, I, I can almost guarantee if reparations happened, it, wouldn't be, it would be less than 24 hours between every, before every New York Times op-ed said, don't you go thinking that anything important just happened. In other words, the same thing that happened after Obama was elected, the same thing that happened after Juneteenth became a federal holiday, which is before it happens, everyone says, well, this will never happen because we're too racist. And then after it happens handily, they don't update 
their their viewpoint, right? The, the, the second after it happens, well, actually, it didn't mean so much. Um, we still have a long way to go. So, and this is something John McWhorter said as well, which is, if I knew that it really would mean something, it would, it would create a sense of closure where we have closed the book not on studying slavery, but on using it to gin up tensions in the present between living descendants. If it really would close that, then maybe I'd, I'd reassess and I'd, I'd be for it, but I know that it won't. Okay, let's get another um, thought. Um, there's someone at the back there. I can't see. Yes, hand up. Yeah, great. My question is on keeps the crop in modern discourse is empire and slavery. Nobody ever seems to refer to the Arab slave trade and get this excited, or the African slave trade, Barbary slave trade, mm-hmm. or the Ottoman Empire slave trade. Mm-hmm. They tell the same with empires. Nobody goes on about the Arabian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it's a big part American because empire. there's a big level of historical illiteracy, both sides of the Atlantic, about what's going actually happened with slavery with the absolute obsession with the European slave trade, totally out of context to any of the other slave trades. Mm-hmm. There was just a movie that came out, you, you probably noticed, called The Woman King. Not terrible as an action movie, but as a piece of history, absolutely atrocious. It, it followed uh, the, the Dahomey Kingdom, which uh, in point of fact was one of the largest... African tribes which participated actively in the slave trade, which enslaved other African tribes, made war against tribes specifically to get slaves, and then uh, profited by trading them to the, to the Europeans. They were already slaves before they were sold to the Europeans. This is one thing an astonishing number of Americans and people in general are, are unaware of, which is that slaves were purchased, by and large purchased as slaves from other African tribes. They were not captured of by and large, like Kunta Kinte in Roots, right? That's not, that's actually not what happened. And as you point out, the Arab slave trade goes back to, you know, the eighth century, right? Something like 15 million, 14, 15 million Africans were enslaved by Arabs between the roughly the the seventh century and, um, you know, the 18th, 19th century. That's a fact very few people know. People know about the 12 million that were sent to the West, uh, but not the 14 million or so that were sent to the East. And um, to this day, the, 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 word, the colloquial word for a black person in much of the Arab world is the word abid, which is the same word as the word for slave. And that should give you a little bit of a sense of how guilty modern Arabs feel, which is to say not at all. And, <laughs> and that, that, that's to say nothing of, of what West Africans, West African descendants of slave traders feel. I, I, have, um, I, I have some Ghanaian friends and uh, Nigerian friends as well, and I once asked them, we were talking about this subject, and they said, yeah, and in, in school we learned that, you know, our ancestors enslaved other tribes and sold them, right? And I asked them, did you feel or were you taught to feel any level of guilt about your ancestors' participation in profiteering um, and active participation in the slave trade? And they said, they looked at me like I was crazy. There was a guilt? Why would I feel? That was ages ago. I had nothing to do with it. 
that is the, the, the way most people react to the injustices committed hundreds of years ago by, by their ancestors. It really only is white people who feel almost any level of guilt about the sins of the, of, of, of the past. Um, when Why do you think there's, that is? I mean, that's, that is a good question. <laughs> um, well, well, why is it that the, the, the white Western group, as distinct from the others, yeah. is so focused on the sins in the past? Well, I see at least two reasons. One is that um, Enlightenment values at some level champion the underdog. And we uh, Western societies are suffused with, at some level, the, the attitude of the Enlightenment. Um, and that can very easily bleed into uh, a, a kind of over-the-top romanticization of victimhood and, uh, and so forth. Another reason may be to do with Christianity and uh, the, the Christian feeling of, of guilt and original sin, which is a very deep, there, there may just be an original sin-shaped hole in the Western soul. and you know, maybe when Christianity is not there, it gets filled by something else. Those are my theories, uh, but it is, it, it is a phenomenon to, to be explained. It's, it's a departure from the norm in the rest of the world. Let's take another question. Uh, there's a, a lady here on the front row and another lady here also on the front row. I'm going to promise I'm going to go um, further back next time. Uh, hello, I'm um, Russian-Jewish of Russian Jewish descent, living here already in Britain nearly 30 years. Um, Germany, as I believe, maybe that's where Western mentality started thinking about nations since Germany. But Germany has invited lots of Russian Jews <coughs> to leave, to immigrate from Soviet Union, giving them better life, <coughs> which, which it definitely did. <laughs> but Russian Jews always complained, and our dream was to go to America. So, uh, question. <coughs> We, Thank you. We, <laughs> we naturally think that, uh, forgive me if I'm a little too abrasive, but we naturally think that haven't um, black people in America already had their reparation done by the fact that they live in one of the most desired country, one of the most desired country of destinations for all the foreigners. For example, we, um, lots of my Russian friends would give their right hand to get the green card and live in America on the worst possible conditions as most immigrants do because we start with, with very, very little. Mm -hmm. So we have to apply for... Mm -hmm. so, so we, from our point of view here, just, just the point of view, mm -hmm. which I'm not insisting, of course, that reparation happened just because they happened to live there. Okay. And, uh, Great. Um, a clear question there. I will come to you in a moment. Have reparations also been paid in some way? That's, it's, it's, it's certainly a controversial idea. I would say no. To, uh, you know, I, I don't think um, me, being in one of the best countries on earth would count as reparations. You know, for instance, you know, would that count as reparations to the, the Japanese in turn during World War II? The fact that they're in America... You know, it, it's it's something to be grateful for, for sure. And it's something I'm very grateful for. But it's not, it wouldn't actually count as reparations uh, in my view. Let me say this, though. Um, the, the, the U.S. Senate 
apologized formally for slavery and Jim Crow in 2008. The House of Representatives apologized formally in, in the same year. The Senate formally apologized for lynching in 2004. Uh, at least eight or nine different U.S. states, and as, as you probably know, slavery was a state issue. Um, so individual states, uh, nine have officially apologized for slavery. And uh, one or two years ago, I read an article in a major uh, outlet saying the America has never formally apologized for slavery. So uh, not only that, but affirmative action, uh, which is a euphemism for racial preferences that um, allegedly you know, benefit black and, and other minorities. Originally, it was called compensatory justice in the late 60s when it was rolled out. And the idea wasn't just let's create diversity everywhere because that's good. That came later. The original idea was let's compensate black people for the injustices they faced. That was the original motive behind affirmative action. So you can argue in those ways, we have had many national apologies and state level of apologies. We've had programs uh, for black Americans that are either explicitly or implicitly justified on the basis of paying black Americans back. So much has been done in the spirit of reparations. I can definitely grant you that. I wouldn't say, however, that simply being in the country counts as reparations. Thank you for that. Um, the lady here had a question, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over there. Thank you. Um, Coleman, you, you talked about several times now, this is not normal behaviour, this is not normal, and you've also used the word ought quite a few times, all in ways with which I completely agree with. But it does suggest to me that there's something about the cultural and moral going on here. Um, it is not normal. It is not normal for an institution like the monarchy to roll over in the way it has. It is not normal for a major example in Britain to openly say we're taking a Nobel-winning author, Kazuo Shigoro, off the set text and replacing him with a with an author who's on this solely because of her sex and her ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And yet these these and it does seem to me that I wonder just what you think of this is a question mm-hmm. bit. Do you think that this is part not necessarily in a conspiratorial way, it could be a spontaneous way ideology emerges and forms, a part of a way of really system, a kind of fairly systematic dethroning of existing sources of legitimacy, particularly in the sphere of intellectual, cultural and moral life. Is it, so is it, what, yeah. is it part of some bigger kind of cultural revolution? Yeah. Well, there is a philosophy going back many decades that... Uh, which says, more or less, meritocracy is not actually neutral or just, and in fact, not possible. People are by nature so racist and ethnocentric that we should not even pretend it's possible to create neutral systems by which to judge. It's a cynical philosophy um, that basically says there are no objective facts. There's no objective right and wrong. There's only me... Uh, linking together with people of my group and and getting the most that we can in competition with you linking together with your group. That's all there is. Um, and, 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 And there is a concerted effort by intellectuals and academics to replace the norms of Enlightenment society with new norms. In other words, to create a new normal. 
And it's already happened in certain institutions. Um, but it, it, it has not overtaken all of society yet. And I think um, the, the values that they're trying to replace are better values. They are actually better values. There's such a thing as uh, one set of values being better than another. And what they've tried to to do is equate the values of meritocracy and the enlightenment with whiteness, right? Even though um, uh, a quick glance at society and at the world shows that these are values that are shared by people of every race around the world, that there's no color to meritocracy. There's no color to valuing objective truth. There's no color to valuing reason, um, no color to valuing um, moral progress, so uh, I think we, we simply have to resist the people that want to create new norms out of values that will lead to a, a, uh, a far darker and um, less, just, less just society. Can, let me just abuse my, my chair position once again and ask the same follow-up question, which is why? Because we talk so much about this, that there is... There are forces out there or there are parts of society that want to overthrow enlightenment values and install this much more zero-sum world, which by any kind of logical analysis seems inferior. Why do these people want to do that, do you think? Are they, are they well-meaning but deluded or is, this, is there an ulterior motive? What's your analysis? I assume it's well-meaning but deluded un- until proven otherwise. Um, I tend to... Uh, Look, people believe all kinds of things, right? Um, religion is just one. Everyone has a different religion. People have different gods. People have different holy books. And all, most such beliefs are sincerely held, however misguided they may be. So I always assume beliefs are sincerely held and until proven otherwise. And you know, if, if the history of communism is any indication, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. And to say something is, is well-intentioned is not to say you shouldn't fight it with every fiber of your being. It's often the well-intentioned ideas that cause the most harm. What, what ideas killed the most people in the 20th century? Actually, by numbers, communism easily, easily destroys fascism, right? And, and I have no trouble believing that many, there were many millions of people that were sincere, sincere in their belief and in their reading of Karl Marx and... Uh, in their following of Trotsky and Lenin and so forth. It was sincerely held, but it still was horrible. And I, I think that's what we're facing. Um, let's take another question. There is um, Eric Kaufman, who is a contributor to Unheard. Thanks, Coleman. Um, great to see you again, of course, after a few Eric, years. Yeah, uh, of course. But um, this question has to do with critical race theory and the battle against it in the U.S. in particular. Uh-huh. Uh, it's in you know, most U.S. schools now. What's your view on the approach that Chris Rufo is now taking and that DeSantis is taking, uh, the legislative approach? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you think that's a good idea? Do you think it'll work? And if, it, if you don't think it'll work, what, what ultimately will be the solution? Yeah, that's a great question. So to people that don't know about that, that's literally legislating against it. This is banning certain phrases and approaches to be in schools whatsoever. Yes. So in, in America, we have this problem where, you know, the public schools that we all pay for with our, our hard earned money are 
to a remarkable degree captured by uh, the left, and it, which is to say, you send your kid to a school and some 85, 90% of the teachers are voting for one party, whereas only 50% of the country is right. And it's not necessarily the moderates that are the issue, but it's that they're populated with extreme ideologues that want to indoctrinate your kids on your dime. And it's, it's a huge problem because kids come home from school saying things to their parents about race that they didn't get from home. I have a friend who is, uh, he is, uh, white Jewish and his, his, um, his wife is Indian and Hispanic and their kids are mixed race. Daughter comes home one day from school, nine years old or something. And she goes, daddy, are you white? So first of all, recognize, you know, it is really true. Kids often don't, sometimes they literally don't really see color, but even if they see it, they don't naturally care about it. Right. She goes, daddy, are you white? He goes, yes. She goes, does that mean you treat people badly? I'm like, so where did she get this idea from? Right. She gets this idea from some lesson that was taught in a particular way at school uh, about race, which imputed the general belief that white people generally treat minorities badly. Right. Of course, this is a very subtle thing. How do you, how do you make that illegal, right? There's a movement now to make that, to fight that. The problem is people don't feel they can fight it by going to their school board and saying, what the hell are we doing? Can we just get back to teaching, you know, objective, well-established history and stop indoctrinating my kids, stop yelling at the kids for having quote-unquote white privilege? This is not your job to teach them values. It's your job to educate them. The values will come from me as a parent, right? Parents are afraid to do that because if someone turns on the iPhone and you go viral on Twitter as the parent that was against critical race theory, that could change your life in really bad ways. So parents are understandably afraid to do that. So they reach for a legislative option. They say, we're going to make a state law that says, you can't say this, teacher can't say this. Here's a problem with that. In my view, I know I talked to Eric about this before. You may disagree, but it's not possible to write a law that is broad enough to actually deal with this issue, but also narrow enough to not ban all kinds of other speech. And we've already seen lawsuits because of these laws <coughs> where books that really aren't bad get thrown in, right? So most of these laws have a clause where anything that promotes the idea that a kid should feel guilty because of their race is illegal, right? Very vague language, right? Very vague. And half of what lawyers do all day is parsing speech that has multiple interpretations. In my view, law is too blunt an instrument to deal with this. And what we need is really to empower people to feel that they can go to their local school board and give them, give people a language and a way of expressing these ideas strongly, um, but in a, in a proportionate way so that people feel they have the vocabulary and the tools to, to speak up in their local communities and encourage people to have a little bit of courage. Because if, if your values really matter, they are worth fighting for and they're worth sacrificing for. Let's take a question. There's a lady at the back, I think, just behind you. Colin. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether you have an alternative approach to just seeing critical social justice defeated. Because I'm very aware that narrative and I'm not a fan of critical social justice just to say that but um, 
narrative and listening to people is incredibly important. And I'm very aware of this from my white friends who want to listen. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't really want to go back to just a purely rational enlightenment <laughs> paradigm. I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts about a middle ground that can bridge this gap. That's a good question. Um, I was speaking to Ken and Malik earlier today. He has a, a good new book out about the history of race. And he said a phrase that kind of stuck with me. He said, there's a difference between identity and identity politics. Everyone has an identity, a particular identity, not a universal, objective, rational identity. You come from a particular place with a particular language, a particular culture, particular food, and particular values. And what is unique about them is precisely that they are different from others. Um, not only is that fine, that is that is part of what makes life rich and beautiful is to have particular attachments. Where, where it becomes dangerous is when that, that particular partial view enters the realm of politics and morality. When you insist on the specialness and the priority of your group over others, um, however that manifests, um, so to me, I, I feel like you. I don't want to live in a colorless, rational, hyper-rational, you know, a, a world with no art and no poetry and no music and no right brain material. Um, that would not be a world worth living in. But I think there should be a f- kind of firewall between our discussions of politics and ethics and, 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 and the rest. And everything else is where the beauty of identity and particular cultures should flourish in art and everywhere else. But when we come to, to, to discuss and legislate and form rules, the rules that we all have to live by, we do have to be in a mindset where um, we, ha- we have to think as if uh, from the, the Rawlsian original position from behind the veil, where what I'm arguing for is it, w- it, w- it would not matter if I was born you or born me to the rules that we create for society. It has to make sense regardless of where I was born in society. So even though you're new book is going to be called Colorblind. Um, sort of get a well, that, that is there. not the title, but that is... Oh. The, I don't know what the title is yet. Oh, They're, sorry. <laughs> but it will de- be defending colorblindness, yeah. So the, the idea then is not that we are fully colorblind and live in a kind of entirely post-racial society. It's just that we can celebrate difference and dwell on it all we like. Mm-hmm. But it's a defense of the law and the kind of... The structures of political, the sphere of political and politics and ethics, I think is special and it should be treated, um, it should be treated differently than literature and music and cuisine and all of the, again, I'm not minimizing those other spheres that those are frankly my favorite parts of being a human being. (laughs) Um, but I do think they should be treated differently. Mm -hmm. Great. Let's get um, the guy at the very back. Um. Hey, Coleman. Uh, it's looking like affirmative action might be repealed by 
by the oh. Supreme Court in the U.S. in this upcoming year. Do yeah. you think that's likely to happen? And if it does happen, do you think that that will be net positive or net benefit for or net negative for race relations in the U.S.? I think it is likely to happen. The Supreme Court has shown it's willing to take controversial stands with Roe v. Wade, and it's a conservative court, the most conservative we've had in a long time. And affirmative action um, on a plain reading of the Civil Rights Act is, is unconstitutional. So, uh, you know, fa- famously, or not as famously as it should, the lead sponsor of the Civil Rights Act um, said on, on the floor, if any jot and tittle or tittle of this act requires or, or allows, you know, racial preferences, I'll eat the entire thing on the Senate floor. So nowhere in that act does it say that affirmative action is allowed. It's probably prohibited on a plain reading. So it will probably be outlawed. As to what it will do, I don't think the question needs to be posed hypothetically because it's already been banned in certain states. California banned affirmative action in 1996. And uh, the results were not any kind of disaster for for black students um, or, or Hispanic students. Basically what happened is Black enrollment stayed the same. Just as many black kids and Hispanic kids went to college, but they went to different colleges. Some of them went to different colleges. If you would have gotten into a top-tier college, you get into right under a top-tier college. And that's, that's unfortunate, but here's, here's the upside, is that instead of black and Hispanic kids being at the bottom of the class at top-tier colleges, having the bottom entering credentials, um, struggling to stay afloat, switching majors from hard sciences to soft sciences, you see black kids as likely as white kids to be in the center of their entering class. Uh, and that's a, that's a benefit. That's a trade-off that I think is good on balance. So, so you're, you are a net, you're an out supporter of getting rid of affirmative action oh, yes. altogether. Race-based affirmative action, yes. Whether you could do something based on income or class is something I'm very open to. But yeah, I've I've always been an opponent of race-based affirmative action. I think it's a it's 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 a bad policy. Now, its effect on race relations as a whole, I don't know. I mean, the the media may be so successful in portraying it as a catastrophe that it actually does have an effect, uh, a negative effect on race relations in the short run. But um, in the long run, I think that's what we have to be aiming for. We have to we, we can't be aiming for a society where in, in the back rooms of universities, they're categorizing people by race and saying, no, we've got enough of these. Actually, we, we need more of these. Right? This, this is what happens. This is the ugly truth. And it's a truth. I mean, we, we paper over this truth by the very language of affirmative action. That is an Orwellian euphemism. Right. If you didn't know what affirmative action was, the words would give you no indication. It's 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 affirmative action is to racial discrimination. What? enhanced interrogation was to torture during the war. <laughs> and Could you also mention the Asian American objections to affirmative Well, yeah, yeah, and Asian Americans are, there, there's no justification of the policy which makes sense of why Asian Americans are getting discriminated against more than anyone. Um, I mean, that just is racial discrimination. We, we, can't, we can't simultaneously say it was horrible to limit the number of Jews at Harvard in 1940 but it's totally fine to limit the number amount of Asians to today. It's, it's, it's a contradiction and it's a contradiction that survives because we have these euphemisms and we don't talk about it really honestly, and we don't actually have to see it. If next year, every kid got an honest reading of why they were rejected from a school that said, 
actually, we liked you, but we have enough of your race. I think affirmative action would be gone in a second. So what does it mean when, apology, when a policy only survives because of secrecy and lack of transparency? It means people actually aren't comfortable with the reality if they were forced to see it. This is why wars have declined in the era where we can see war on the television, right? It's the same thing. Um, I have absolutely promised we will stop at uh, half past, which is in six minutes. So what I'm going to do is take um, a, three questions, if we could, um, and then we can do a bit more of a kind of general summing up and take some themes from those questions. So there's a question over here. Um, if we can get the mic over to this guy on the yellow. Great. Thank you for all your eloquent and uh, logical comments. Um, three quick questions about unconscious bias. Um, firstly. Um, three? Well, just very quick, just very quick. Um, so the first is, um, is it different from racism? Was it a different form of racism? Second, how much of a problem is it? And third, is there any effective way of reducing it? Plus, I'm not going to make three into more than three. So you, you're going to have to use that huge mental faculty to hold all of those. Um, Flo, we've got one from someone online. I said we'd take a question from the online audience. So We do. So our online question comes from Catherine Fuller, and um, they ask, what is She asks. The... I think we could be <laughs> quite <laughs> About the black men who were murdered off the rise of BLM, what do we know about the perpetrators? So she asks mm -hmm. that. Yeah, so... Okay. No, I, so I'm, I'm going to let, you, I'm gonna let you, you speak now. Okay, so answer that one. The perpetrators were also black. Um, almost all crime is intra-racial in, in America because um, in, in poor communities where crime happens, it's, you know, it's very segregated. So uh, the point about that was simply the pulling back and reducing and totally defanging of the police hurt black people more than anyone. That's the point. As for unconscious bias, um, I do think it's a real thing. I think it's, it's not simply on the topic of race, but on all kinds of topics. I think clever social scientists can find ways of proving that your subconscious is not perfectly rational, which should surprise nobody, really, because <laughs> um, our conscious minds aren't even rational perfectly. So um, as for whether we know how to address it or even measure it, we don't. We have tools that really should be called, I think, pseudoscience at this point. There was a lot of understandable excitement about the implicit association test created by um, Mazarin Banaji. Totally understand if you tell people we have this way of measuring your subconscious. Obviously, it's a super sexy finding that people, you know, TED talks about it. I mean, but by now, the literature has, just like many things in, in, in psychology literature, turned out to be a fad without much substance. Um, very not replicable. Your test on it is not replicable or reliable from test to test. And um, turns out we, we have not figured out how to measure the subconscious, much less influence it. And certainly um, a person at your corporation standing in front of you with a PowerPoint about how uh, you know, whiteness equals oppression is not influencing uh, unconscious bias in a, in a in a positive direction, in my view. 
Um, so I do think it is real and it does matter. And, you know, these are the, it's, it's the kind of thing that can influence a cop's decision whether or not to pull the trigger in the moment. It's not something to be minimized, but we don't actually understand it. And it's used as a, as an excuse for basically fake experts to, to lecture you, you know, presenting solutions that are not actually real solutions. So I think we should be humble about our understanding about it, continue studying it. And, um, and have a more scientific attitude toward it. We have one final question. There's a guy um, by the pillar, but just while he takes the microphone, I have two little pieces of news. First of all, Catherine has confirmed that she is indeed a woman. We can (laughs) relax about that. Um, But also, I think it has to be shared that Hot Off the Press, Coleman's excellent podcast, um, has just won the Signal Prize, um, which is a very prestigious prize in the podcasting world. And which category were you... Uh, nominated for and successful in? Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oh, yes. um, so let's have your final question. Uh, hello, um, right. I just wanted to um, ask you if this was a thing with you as well. Mm. Um, and I just noticed uh, regarding police brutality mm. in America, <coughs> armed police, um, whenever there's a... <coughs> Uh, how can I put it? I would I would say that police brutality is pretty much spread amongst everybody. Um, but why does it seem that every time it happens to someone who is black, it makes national news? Mm-hmm. That is an excellent question. George Floyd murdered in 2020. Everyone knows his name around the world. Tony Timpa may be a name some of you are familiar with, um, but broadly is not known, was murdered in almost the identical way a few years earlier on video. Almost no one knows his name. Uh, during 2020, to, to, to make this point, I picked a random year. I picked 2015 and picked out 10 or 15 stories of white Americans unarmed, killed by the cops. One was a six-year-old kid. Uh, it happens every year. And it stays local news. Every article that I cited was, you know, the Detroit Gazette, the, you know, <clears throat> never makes a New York Times, CNN, et cetera. Uh, because it does not, it, it doesn't tap into the tribal um, tensions, which get the media clicks, right? The media gets the most clicks based on stories that tap into the biggest psychological motivators for people, which is race and tribe, right? So if a, and, and historical grievances as well. So a white cop kills, uh, you know, a kid like Daniel Shaver who had his hands up and shoots him dead. Doesn't really tap into what, what, what gets clicks. And so people get the false impression that this only happens to black people. Yeah. And, and, and that in turn creates the conditions for rioting. Because if it were simply viewed as an issue of police uh, overreach and police abuse, I don't think there would be riots in the streets. I think there would be legislation passed. There would be conversations, constructive conversations. There wouldn't be burning down mom and pop shops. But because the media creates this perception that it's a race versus, it's a white versus black issue, uh, which it's not in my point of view, at, at least not mainly, that creates the conditions for riots. I'm going to have to uh, 
draw it to a conclusion there. Um, and my final question was going to be whether there's any signs that this is getting better, whether there is any sense that the conversation is becoming more sane, but I don't even need to ask it because I think Coleman's presence here and his contribution to the debate more generally is bringing a clarity and calmness to these vexed questions, which can only uh, make it better. Thank you so much also to Tomiwa, who we totally landed in at our last minute notice. Thanks for being a good sport there. And thank you all for coming and for tuning in. Um, the conversation will continue at the bar and the restaurant downstairs is open. This was unheard. <laughs>